Hey there, it's nice to have you with us. I'm Christina, and isn't today a beautiful day? The weather is just perfect for us to get together and sit for a spell, maybe have some tea or lemonade, enjoying the company, and getting the chance to hear some remarkable stories from people just like you and me. I've got plenty of room here, don't be a stranger. Settle on in and make yourself comfortable. Welcome to my front porch. The timeless love story of Richard and Paulette is very non-traditional in every sense of the word. There was no serendipitous meeting, no lightning strike when their eyes met for the first time. How we perceive love and romance today is tainted so much by how Hollywood has led us to believe love occurs. Now keep in mind, the story begins in the early 1960s. As a culture, we were still very June and Ward Cleaver. The idea of romance and dating was very conventional, and as a whole, the idea of marriage was built around the American dream with a husband working to support his family while his wife raised their children. Richard Kilpatrick was the son of a well-respected firefighter, James Newton Kilpatrick, and a matriarchal mother, Sue Rankin Kilpatrick, granny and papa to me. Paulette Ferguson was the sweet girl across the street who grew up poor but no less sophisticated. Her mother, Elizabeth, raised her three daughters as if they were debutantes. In the first part of the story, Richard recounts their less than illustrious meeting in courtship and how they eventually married and began to raise a family that revolved around his ministry to God. Before Paulette, I was pretty much on a track to become in the ministry, but I started working full-time while going to school and Actually, I was still in junior high school when I started working full-time in the grocery business. I liked it, made good money at it, Was really got going in the grocery business and went through high school working full-time. I wasn't able to play a lot of sports in school. I did play sports for the church team I played on. Our church had baseball, football, basketball, and I played on all that. But my life was pretty much, I'm going into the ministry, and I dated some girls and fell in love with all of them and asked them all to marry me and all that kind of stuff. But None of them wanted to be preacher's wives, and so that wasn't a very good selling point. In the 10th grade, Paula and I were in the same English class together. We didn't, it was the only class we had together. She sat in the front row, and she was a very sophisticated, beautiful young lady, always dressed well, prim and proper, and I was the class nerd, clown, joker. I didn't like being in school, and so I tried to make it as best I could without getting in trouble or going to the principal's office every day or something. I couldn't wait to get out and go to work, do my thing. And by then, I had my own car. And Paulette's family and our family, they could see our house and we could see their houses. So our sisters started playing together. I knew them, and but they went to another church. And my dad met her dad, and they became fishing buddies. My sisters said, well, why don't you date Paulette? I'd gone out with her best friend, and she introduced me to her. What really started it, my relationship with Paulette, was uh, they would ride to school with us. And I didn't like it because I went to Bible club, which was before school started. And so I had to be there a little early. And they were girls. They always had to comb their hair. They had, you know, something needed to be fixed before they could go. And, and it was just frustrating all the time. But one week, my mother said, 
well, the Fergusons are coming to our church Sunday to visit. And Paulette's going to be in your department. I want you to be friendly to her. Well, it just so happens that I led the music in the intermediate department, which was the older teenagers' class. And so that Sunday, the pianist didn't show up. I don't know what happened, but she didn't show up. But I knew Paulette played the piano, so I invited her to play the piano. My mother told me to be friendly to her, and so I was. And I've been friendly ever since. We went out, and she wanted to be a preacher's wife. And I was looking for one. She could play the piano. She So I thought that's a pretty good match. We started dating our junior year and went through our senior year together. And then she got a job. She started working at the phone company. Then we started going to Bible college. It, it was then called Mid-South Bible College. It's gone now, so it's, that's how old I am. Paulette started going to the Bible college there. She was in Maker Road, and she got real involved in that. She sang in, in the ensemble there with my sisters, and she uh, was wrote the church paper. And But I had, at the time, had taken some part-time work as a youth director at another church and so I would go with that church and when my church would be over I'd come get her from her church and we'd go get something to eat and our courtship was mostly around our Christian friends and family and we went to revivals and we went to uh, all kinds of outings for Christian things and that was pretty much what we did because going to school working so that's about all there was that's all the time we had and we just enjoyed our Christian friends, and, and our life was pretty much around the church. And I needed to go to a liberal arts college, and I was going to go to Tennessee Temple College in uh, Chattanooga. So I was going to quit my job, and this, that, and the other. And Paul said, you're not going without me. My dad wanted to know why I wanted to quit my job since I was making about as much money as he was. <laughs> he, he said, well, you can go to school here. You're going to school here. I said, well, we, we need to go to different schools. So Paul and I got engaged, and and we got married in uh, December the 30th, 1966. Then uh, when we went, decided to get married, we went to Chattanooga. I didn't have a job, didn't have a place to live. And I, her parents weren't too excited about that. And my dad wasn't real happy about that. You need a place to live. You got to get a job. But I started working there in the grocery business and uh, got us a place. And she was happy and I was happy. And we enjoyed that. We were poor as we could be. But the uh, first apartment was $50 a month, including the utilities, and it was probably the whole apartment, the bedroom and the living room and the kitchen and the bathroom all together, probably 24 by 24, about, about 400 square feet. <laughs> then uh, I went on, graduated from college, then decided to go to seminary there, continue to work for Kroger Rock, and I started uh, being the pastor at Brainerd Baptist Church, and, and Paulette enjoyed that, and we made some great friends there. And that's when Kelly came along, our daughter. And so we moved from that apartment to another apartment that's a little bigger. And we almost lost Kelly so she could move. I'd have to leave her in the morning laying on the couch. And I had to put all the food and ice and everything else right there for her. And then I'd come check her after school before I went to work. And then after work, I'd come home make sure she was all right so she didn't have to do anything but stay there. So Kelly came along and that great blessings and I graduated from Tennessee Temple Seminary. I graduated from the college in 69. I graduated from the seminary in 72 with a master in divinity and we moved to our first church. Served as assistant pastor, youth pastor there. We were in Florida six years. In 1979 we went to Griffith Baptist Church as pastor. Kelly was, I don't know, she about 10 and we went to Griffith and we stayed at Griffith from February of 1979 till November 2003. About 20 four twenty five years. 
And Paulette was so committed and so dedicated. And she loved it. She loved the ministry. And Kelly loved the ministry. And she always loved me. And I, I didn't know how to love her like I should. And I said, I've been called to the ministry and the ministry and the ministry. And 24-7, it was just ministry, just ministry, just I must admit, I put the ministry ahead of her, and that was not good, okay? I just realized that I wasn't putting her first. I mean, I wasn't putting her where she needed to be, and I hadn't really known how a man is supposed to love a woman, a husband is supposed to love his wife. How we put our love together was the way we served the church and each other, and they really got two for one. They got Paulette and me, and actually three for one. When Kelly got old enough, they were getting the whole load because we all loved what we did and i think that's why it just that that love of what we were doing was love manifested in each other even more but she began to get sick and have different problems physically the first was her thyroid got all out of whack and man it was serious for a while and then she uh, developed some ramifications from that and we had to have that taken care of and then she got cancer and I think the suddenness of that situation brought me to realize how important she was to me all of a sudden I was faced with wow I went to the doctor for just a regular checkup there was a lump and the next thing I know they did a biopsy and the next day they did radical mastectomies and it was happened that quick I mean it just Kaboom, it wasn't a gradual thing. Then she went through chemo. As a result of the chemo, not only did she lose her hair, but she lost all of her teeth. Her thyroid regenerated and a bunch of other stuff. And they had to do radiation. And the radiation devastated her health, everything. Kelly and I had always been super duper close, but that brought her closer to her mother to see her mother suffering. And yet she never missed church. She never missed playing the piano. She was a trooper, and that gave me a greater appreciation for her and who she was and what she was. I can't remember Paulette ever letting anybody down, and I know I had, but she had never, ever failed to answer somebody else's call. She never disappointed. Some men might say, well, she wasn't the greatest cook, but that wasn't what she enjoyed doing. She enjoyed teaching. We had a lot of young people at the house all the time. Our house was always, always full of young people. And our families would send the nieces and nephews up to spend the summers with us. And we went on all the retreats. We went on mission trips all together. That's what we loved and that's what we did and that's who we were. And the kids loved her to death. I was always hard on the kids, but she, she's the one that offered them consolation, condolences. And she always felt sorry for them and, under, you know, patted them and petted them. And I just, I made them behave and they, we loved doing that. It was just our life. It was, and we felt so fulfilled. We never worried about money because we enjoyed the kids. Even when I was a pastor and not the youth director or not the associate pastor, we had all the kids all the time. The kids would rather hang out at our house than, than or their own. She still took care of everybody, even though it wore her out. So that has increased my appreciation for her. After Paulette's bouts with her thyroid disorder and her breast cancer, Richard's ministry could not continue as it had before. The family made a tough decision to return back to Memphis, Tennessee from Griffith, Indiana, where Richard served as a Baptist minister for a quarter of a century. This dramatic change in their lives could not have been easy 
but they trusted God to get them through it, and life seemed to be going well as they bought their first home and began to settle into a more relaxed lifestyle. Then my Aunt Paulette had her accident. In part two of the timeless love story of Richard and Paulette, Richard shares the dramatic details of his family's tragedy, how they coped during Paulette's recovery with little hope, and how he committed to God to abide by his will for their future. When we came here, back with our families and back with our friends, and we stayed with her mother for about a year, and then we finally got our own house. First time we'd ever had our own house, and she wanted to have her own decorations and do her thing, and we had family over. The place was always filled with people, and Kelly would come and help her cook, and Sunday was a great day. We had a great day in church. The Lord was good. We had company. We had friends over Sunday night after church, and and then Paulette had her accident. Monday morning, uh, Kelly was living in her own condo at that time, and not far from here. Kelly was going to have some company. Her, her cousin from Florida was going to come up. She wanted to clean up the house, and so Paulette offered to go clean up the house for her. And we said, well, do you want my car? I'm going to be busy today. I don't need the car. Kelly said, you want my car? I'm going to be busy and take me to work. And you have no, no, I want to ride my bicycle. We hadn't gotten the bicycles out like Saturday and fixed them all up, and everything was great. And she was riding her bicycle, and there's a hill going down the hill. And it comes to the place just at the corner where she was going to turn to go to Kelly's. The sidewalk, for some reason, wasn't sidewalk. It was rocks. And when she hit the rocks, it threw her head over head over heels off the front of her bicycle. When she fell, she fell so heavy, she broke her shoulder, her collarbone. She broke her pelvis. She even broke a little toe. Beat herself up. She was bruised, and, and she hit her head. And Man. That caused traumatic brain injury. And I'm at work and I get a call and I said, your wife's in the hospital. She fell off her bicycle and hurt herself. They didn't tell me it was a head injury. They just said she fell off her bicycle. So I'm thinking, well, she broke her leg, broke her arm, whatever. And then we went to the trauma center, the med here in Memphis and found out she was having brain surgery. She had fallen and hit her head and her head had swollen. And so many miracles took place just in that moment. The fact that somebody got her to the hospital, number one. And number two, the doctor was rolling another patient in, saw Paulette's situation, put that patient aside and took her in. Kelly knew one of the doctors at the med, so she called the doctor and he got us some information. And the doctor came out and said, well, we're going to have to do surgery or she's going to die. And I told the doctor we're going to pray about it. And he said, we don't have time to pray. It's, it's an emergency. we got to go ahead and operate. My feelings were, Lord, she's in your hands. You know, she's your child. She belongs to you more than she belongs to me. She had already been through cancer, chemo, radiation. And seven and a half hours later, he came out of surgery and said, well, we did the best we could. Took out part of her lower temporal lobe and about 10% of it. Not sure that she'll be ever be anything but a vegetable if she lives. If she does live, she'll be in the hospital maybe forever. Kelly and I both were, just, were in shock. Of course, the rest of the family, too. And nobody could go in to see her. So finally, they let us in to see her. And she had so many. Oh, man. She had so many machines. She was hooked up. She had two bolts in her head. She had she had no skull. She just had a face. Because they had taken out all her skull. It was a horrible sight to see. Three big things of 
blood where her brain was bleeding. I mean, I can't even describe it. She was on every machine they had in the building. Couldn't get them all in the room. They told us about this thing called the Glasgow Coma Scale. It goes from 3 to 15. 3 is brain dead. 15 is pretty normal. So somewhere in the scale there. And he said she's a 4 going down. He didn't give us much encouragement. She was never technically on life support. She was on breathing machines and stuff, but only to help her. The doctor said he didn't believe in God, so we're going to pray anyway. So we prayed, and he accepted that. And then we got in there, and she was still alive. I said, well, let's, can we take her off the breathing machine? If she really is okay, she'll be able to breathe. And nobody could get a response out of her, but I went in there. I'm so loud and so intense that they noticed her eyes moving. And then when I was there, she kind of moved her fingers a little bit. So they said she's responsive, but we don't know if that's a jerk reaction, like a reflex reaction, or if that's something stimulated. But every time I'd come in there, she would do that. So they knew something was connected. And that gave Kelly encouragement, too. But anyway, I said, well, doctor, that looks like it's a miracle that she's made. And he says, well, I don't believe in that. It's a medical phenomenon. I said, well, that sounds like a miracle to me, but it's all right. Then they took her off the machine and she breathed on her own. No assistance. And they moved her in out of the most intensive care that they had. And she was there for five weeks. After those five weeks, she went to the skilled nursing facility. And at that skilled nursing facility, she was still on machines and stuff that they could do there, but they could maintain her there. Well, we wanted to find out where this glaucoma scale was like from, was she now four, five, six? And so we prayed that they, th- they thought if she was a nine, that'd be viable. And when we got there, she was a nine. So we were satisfied with that. In the nursing home, they never had enough help. So Kelly and I took turns of just going up there and staying. And she'd come in and I'd go in. And we'd be there as much as we could. The thing we didn't understand, she got no therapy. I think if she'd have had therapy, she might have responded better. Six months into being in there, they had frozen her skull, so they wanted to put it back. They knew she couldn't continue to live like this. So they did surgery, put the skull back in there. And within a week, it got infected, so they had to take that out. She got septic, so she had to go back. We had taken the trach out. And it healed back, so they had to put another trach in there, and we almost lost her again. In fact, they told us she wasn't going to survive this either. Her blood pressure dropped to 34, and her heart rate was 144. The two are not compatible. So they had to blow her up with fluids. She looked like she weighed 500 pounds. Again, they hooked her up to all kinds of machines and stuff. And they did some more brain surgery, cleaned off all the damaged tissue and all the stuff that hadn't healed in the six months and repaired as much as they could repair. And then when they sent her back, they had to put her in isolation. The COVID-19 today is nothing like what we had to wear when we went in to see her. I had to put on helmets and face masks and gloves and gowns and boots and I mean, because they didn't want any infection in there. We had to be there most of the time. And then after she was septic and stuff, I gave her permission and said, Paulette, honey, I love you. If you want to go to heaven, you go ahead. I'll be there soon. But if you want to stay here and the Lord wants you here, then whatever we have to do, 
will do. And we made that commitment, Kelly and I, and made that commitment. I really thought I was going to lose her more then than I did the first time. I was pretty confident the first time God was going to bring her through that, but the second time they said it was even more serious because her body was poisoned. All her things were going to shut down and not function. And after five more weeks, we were able to get her back in that nursing home. And she was there, and I got where I just, I didn't even hardly come home, but to take a shower and, and go back to work or go, go there and just stay there. I, I know the Lord worked it out so that we could learn how to take care of her. If we hadn't done that, I wouldn't know all the things to take care of her. In June, one year later, Dr. Shelley Timmons said we're going to put a polyethylene plate on her head. So she went back, had the surgery, and she progressed so well. They gave her another test and said, we're going to see now. We want to be sure she's still a 9 or 10, still viable. She was an 11 on her way to 12, which means that she's responsive. So they told her, if you want to, you can take her home. Boy, Kelly and I got so excited. Kelly called me there and said, Dad, do you think we can take Mom home? And I said, well, we got to make arrangements to have a place to take care of her. And we tried to fix the nursing home up and decorate it up and keep it as close to home as we could, but it's not home. When they said we could take her home on that morning, by that afternoon at 3.30, we had her home. We had to get a bed. We had to get chairs we had to get machines we had to get everything set up but god we were so happy to have her out of that place kelly quit her job at the church and moved in with me and took care of her i worked but i couldn't keep the pace at bellevue so i left bellevue and went to hospice and started doing hospice and again i learned a lot in hospice too that's how we've been taking care of her for 14 years of the 15 year tasks here, in the final part of our story, Richard experiences what some call a perspective shift, where he sees the plight of his life, now caring for his invalid wife, incapacitated by her terrible accident, as a blessing to him and to his ministry. Paulette never viewed her commitment to Richard and his calling as a burden. She simply loved her husband, loved their life, and embraced it with her whole heart in service to God. Richard cannot express enough his admiration for this gift of unconditional love that his wife gave him and he believes she continues to give him to this day. She's not a burden to bear, she's a crown to wear, is his testimony of love to her now as he commits to serve God in his love for Paulette for the rest of their lives. I tell people this, the greatest thing that ever happened to me was Jesus Christ. But she's the greatest thing that ever happened to me besides Jesus Christ, and he gave her to me. She's not a burden to bear. She's a crown to wear. She's a treasure. And what made me realize is that she's always cared about other people more than herself. She never wanted to be out there. She never wanted to. She never wanted attention. She never wanted to be out front. She was God's gift to me in the ministry if my ministry was anything, it was because of her and what God had done in her as well as what she had taught me. She taught me how to love, unconditional. People would reject, and she would just say, we have to forgive them, we have to love them. And she taught me how to love. My love has grown richer and deeper in these 15 years. She still loves me 
more than I love her, if that's possible. Even now, the way she looks at me, the way she responds to me, the way she tries to help me when I'm trying to do something for her, knowing that she can't, she's just a vital, vibrant woman trapped in a body that doesn't work. She can give you the thumbs up. She can point. She can squeeze your hand. She can nod. She can blink. She tries to speak, tries to get the words out. I haven't heard my wife's clear voice in 15 years. That's hard. She's not my life in the sense that, you know, I wouldn't exist without her, but my life goal is to take care of her like the Lord wants me to. She's touched lives this way. We've actually probably seen as many spiritual developments in other people's lives this way as we did in ministry in other ways. Because it has to be God. Now it can't be us. It can't be me. It can't be. It's not the sermons I'm preaching or the visits I make. It's what God does. And it was always that way. But sometimes you think you're doing the work. Now you realize he's doing it. And so that's the beautiful part about it. Just the fact that we've had her at home for 14 years is a tremendous testimony to the grace of God. And even now, she's helped in the ministry of counseling. God's just still using her and still blessing. And so it's been wonderful. And that love, I don't know anything else but that now. I I have a ministry now as good or big as I ever had when I was working. It's definitely a God thing. God did this. Nobody can explain. Nobody knows. I don't either, but it happened. And the whole story of her life in these 15 years, it's just been a demonstration of how God can do over and beyond what we think. I don't pray for my will. I pray for his will. The Lord's prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Some people say, well, he hasn't answered your prayer. She can't talk. He hasn't answered your prayer. She's not healed. He hasn't answered. He's answered every prayer. Because I pray for his will. I don't pray for mine. She is the testimony. She's the witness to the glory of God. And so I get to share in that with her. It's not me taking care of her. It's her taking care of me even now. I'm still getting more out of her than she's getting from me. I'm still receiving more than I'm giving. She's still way ahead of me in loving. She has that spirit, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. And that's why I'm blessed. Instead of me blessing her, she's the blessing. I have never been, or never could be, the husband she's been a wife. I never could be. I'm a better husband, but I'm still not where I need to be. But I'm blessed. I'm really blessed. In this age, when we're taught to love ourselves and take care of ourselves and do good for ourselves, and Paulette is selfless, not selfish. Paulette's joy in life is to see others do better than her, to see others be their best, to see others prosper, even if it's at her expense. She does that even now. So I am receiving more than I'm giving, and that's love. Love is, is not measuring what the other one does. Love is saying, God, you love me this much. And you've told me to love others as you love me. How much is that? And she's still pouring it out. Marriage is about the commitment, the vow. Yeah, sure. To death do us part, better or worse. Paulette's went beyond that. And that's what she's teaching me now. And that's why I'm getting better at it. I need a few more years. I don't know how long God will give me, but I, I want to learn. Love is not designed to fit into a box, and how we see our lives today is never the final destination. 
Love, unlike our own ideas for what we perceive as our life's destination, is changeless and without condition. While we often believe that our will prevails for how we want to live our lives, according to Richard, God's is still greater and better than we could ever imagine. Richard and Paulette's love is timeless because nothing in this world can ever destroy it. If you are lucky enough in your life to have a love such as this, I hope you never let it go. Well, it sure was nice visiting with you today. I hope you enjoyed our time together as much as I did. There are so many untold stories and wonderful storytellers out there, maybe even you. Storytelling is a lost art form, one we should be striving to preserve. Stories bring us together through shared experiences. Whether in joy or sadness, we all have something in common. We all have a story to tell. So if you or someone you know has a story that deserves to be told, contact me and I may just invite them on by. There's always plenty of room on my front porch.